0: I'm a big fan of foreign flicks. Anybody? Anybody else? Saw this? Okay, some of you? Okay. Um, my favorite movies actually are like Korean gangster films, but that's another story for another time. Anyway, um, I saw this movie a while back called Three Seasons, it's a Vietnamese movie. And it chronicles three, four different stories in this movie, but but there's this particular kind of subset of the story. Tells of a story of a guy named Hai, who's a cyclo-driver, who hangs out near these fancy hotels and takes these guests to wherever they want to go. And once he has this chance meeting with a prostitute who services herself to sort of wealthier clients, whose name is Lon. And 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 High has this infatuation and sort of falls in love with Lon. Of course, Lon's like, I don't have nothing to do with you. You're a cyclo driver. I live my life sort of selling myself to these high clients. And but they strike up this sort of friendship. And High discovers that Lon has this longing. The longing is, on one hand, sort of to be herself, to be a woman, to be independent, to be successful, to be freed from this life that she hates and detests. But then at the same time feeling bound, not knowing what she can do to get out of it so she tells him in this one powerful scene a longing that she has just to sleep in one of these fancy hotels and just to just to fall asleep and just just to enjoy the accommodations and feeling like she she belongs in this setting And high then enters this race cyclo driver race and he wins fifty dollars and what does he do with the fifty dollars he purchases a room in one of the fancier hotels in downtown, and he invites Lon to be his guest. And here's what happens next. And uh, a film critic wrote it much more beautifully than I did. So this is what he says. He says, "Hi has only purchased her as an actual guest in a pal- in a place in the normal world she dreams of joining, and he asks for only this." Permission to watch her fall asleep in it. Slowly, comfortably, she falls asleep. And he's gone by the morning. Having demanded nothing from her except a chance to fulfill her longings. Just a desire to belong. But something snaps in her. She finds she can't go back to her old job of prostitution. Having experienced for the first time somebody who used his power to serve her, she gets a new sense of her own dignity. She's not the same person. She is completely changed by the transforming grace of selfless love. The reason why that story is powerful for me is because every single one of us can relate to the power of grace in our lives. You never walk away the same when you truly encounter grace in your life. Something about us because grace is so foreign to us because grace, undeserved merit, favor is so foreign to us that when somebody actually extends grace to us something in us says that is unreal. That is not normal. That is unusual. And especially when it's somebody who has the power and the authority and ability to do otherwise, when they extend grace to us that we don't deserve, something in us changes. And the reason why that's powerful is because when you read the Bible and all of the New Testament, the New Testament authors constantly get to this about everything in our lives. And they say the way that we will experience change, transformation, the way that we will be different is when we realize that we have somebody who extended grace to us. We have somebody who had the authority of heaven, who had the power and authority to do anything in the world, and he uses that power and authority, lays it down for sinful humanity. He takes his authority, his power, the praise of heaven, and he uses that to become obedient, obedient even, to death on a cross for sinful humanity. Humanity. And the Bible says over and over again that the, the, the power and the key to change and transformation is when we realize that he has done that for us. And I'll tell you what, to the degree to which you understand is the degree to which you will change as a Christian. And the degree to which we don't understand it, don't accept it, is the degree to which we will constantly struggle in our Christian lives until the transforming power of grace hits you. You will not walk away changed. And the interesting thing is the Bible also says this. As the result of experiencing this grace and the way that you could tell that you have truly experienced grace and encountered Jesus in grace is that you will be a, check this out, a radically generous person. It's not an if, it's not if. It says, when you truly encounter grace in the form of Jesus Christ, you will walk away changed. And the Bible illustrates this, teaches this in many ways. An illustration of this is a is a very familiar story. We're not going to spend a lot of time on it, just as an illustration. It's found in Luke chapter 19. It's about a guy named Zacchaeus. Do you remember that story? Zacchaeus, little man, wee little man was he. We all sing along. Okay, Zacchaeus was a little guy. Now, I want to just read this text to you. I'm not going to spend time on it because I want to illustrate how an experience of grace resulted in radical generosity. Luke 19. If you don't have your Bibles up on the screen. So Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but being a short man, he could not because of the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed the sycamore fig tree to see him. Now, guys, look up here. Just a real snap. You know, many of us that know this story, we were taught grammar school you know, with felt boards and all. You know, Zacchaeus was short, and that's why he had to go to the front of the crowd to see him. It's, he, didn't have, he didn't climb a fig, sycamore fig tree because he could, if you're short, you're not a, a bother to the crowd. And actually being able to see. If you're short, the crowd could still see over you. The reason why he had to climb a sycamore fig tree wasn't because she was short. The reason why he had to climb the sycamore fig tree was because he was hated. Why was he hated? As a tax collector. I'll talk about that in a moment. So he ran ahead and climbed the sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Jesus Jesus the kids come down immediately I must stay at your house today so he came down at once and welcomed him gladly all the people saw this and began to mutter he has gone to be the guest of a sinner Verse 8, but Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. And Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and save that which was lost. The story of Zacchaeus is one of the clearest examples of gospel of grace and action. So the clear story is the gospel of grace in action. Here's a man who is despised and rejected by the moral community. That's why he can't stand in front of them, even though he won't block their view. They can't stand him. He's a tax collector. He's a pariah. He's stealing from his own people. They know he's a sinner. He knows that he's a sinner. He is incapable of finding God. And yet, here's the compelling difference between gospel and religion. And religion, it's I'm searching for God. In religion, it's I'm seeking for God. In religion, it's what are the rules? What are the do's and don'ts? Let me do them. And as I do them, then I have a claim on God. I deserve a good life. Why does my life look the way it does? This isn't fair. Religion. Gospel springs from a completely different motivation. The gospel is God came to seek and save us. The gospel is God came to seek and save that which was lost. Religion is human search for God. The gospel of Jesus Christ, essence of Christianity says, God came to seek and save lost sinners who weren't worthy of his grace. Notice verse 6. Zacchaeus doesn't say, Jesus, I want you to to invite you into my life. I want you to come into my life. No, Jesus says in verse 6 to Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. Zacchaeus, I'm coming into your life. Open your life to me. Here I come. Gospel of Jesus Christ springs from a completely different motivation. Religion says you got to act right do right be right before god could receive you before god could accept you before god could approve of you religion says here a list of do's and don'ts that you need to obey and get right before you are worthy the gospel of jesus christ says you don't do a list of things and then become worthy of his grace you become worthy of his grace because we have a, a gracious savior who initiates, despite our flaws, despite our sins, despite our weaknesses, initiates salvation, comes calling and seeking us out in our lostness, in our sin, in our crap. Is that good news? Do you know what that means? And this is why some of us don't understand through the gospel of grace. Because if that's how we enter into the kingdom of God, if that's how we get on board with this thing called Christianity then you need to recognize today that he, if you're a child of God, loves you. He loves you. And I've said this before. He doesn't love a future version of you. He loves you. Many of us today think, I think he will love me. And that's completely different from the gospel which says he does love you. As long as you hold on to this, he will love me As long as you hold on to this, he will future version. As long as I act and do uh, you will not walk away transformed and changed. The gospel of Jesus Christ says he loves you. Period. Period. So he loves you enough to let you suffer. He loves you enough to let you go to some dark places so that what's down here can be churned up to the top so that God can heal you. He loves you enough to call you unto himself. He loves you enough to send his one and only son to be slaughtered on the cross. He loves you enough, Romans 8, that no sin, no sickness, no death, nothing in all of creation can separate you from the love of God. You and I see sin, our sin, as this reason for God to want to have nothing to do with us. And the gospel says God looks at our sin as an opportunity for God to do something, mag- uh, mag- to, something to magnify his name, to glorify his name as he heals us from it. He doesn't love you because you're good. You're not. I'm not. He loves you because his son died and rose again on your behalf. He loves you not because of your merit, my merit. He loves you because of his merit. Do you understand that? Now look what happens to Zacchaeus. The evidence of a genuine encounter with God is on in verse 8. He says, This kid stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. If I've cheated out about anything, I will pay back four times the amount. The evidence of a radical encounter. But first of all, he says, I'm going to give half of my possessions. Here's what's going on. According to the Mosaic law, which Zacchaeus would have been familiar with, you gave 10%. That was according to Mosaic law. And Zacchaeus is saying, like, I'm going to blow right past 10%. I'm going to give half of my possessions the poor. There isn't sort of, you know, what's the percentage income? He's saying, I'm going to be radically generous. And then the whole four times the amount, according to the Old Testament, if you stole someone's cattle... The penalty for repaying that person was you pay back four times the value of a cattle. So Zacchaeus is using that economic penalty on himself and saying, anybody I've defrauded, anybody I've lied to, anybody I've cheated, I'm going to pay back four times what I took from them. Radical generosity. Now, check this out. It's not just the actions. It's the attitude. Do you see the attitude? Verse 8. He literally goes, Look, Lord! It's not duty, look, Lord. It's not fear out of punishment. If I don't, God's going gonna... to... look, Lord. There's joy. There's delight. There's no, you know, you need to... There's joy and delight in saying, look, Lord. It's literally saying, look, Daddy. Look. Here. Here. An experience of radical grace. Radical generosity. Not born out of fear, duty, obligation. Grace. 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 I'm going to say one last time and we'll move on. He's not looking out to love some future version of you. He loves you. Period. He will love me is not the gospel. He does love me is the gospel. We're finishing up our series on stewardship, treasure today. Nobody sings leaving the church during the sermon series. I don't get a lot of encouraging thank you emails during the sermon series. You know, it's a lot of, you know, one of those. That's okay. That's okay. (laughs) That's okay. I get it. It's so one of those things, one of those topics, the pastor talks about it, and everybody walks away going, you know what? That really, really is not comfortable to listen to. i <laughs> somebody finds that really funny. <laughs> I got to talk about it. You and I, and I, I just, Jesus talked about it all the time. 11 of 39 parables, New Testament. Jesus talked about money, possessions, wealth. Five, if the Bible has 500 verses on faith, 500 verses about prayer, we find over 2,000 verses in the Bible devoted to the topic of money, wealth, and possessions. Jesus talked about money, wealth, and possessions more than heaven and hell put together. He talked about it all the time. Why? Matthew chapter 6, verse 21, Jesus said, Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also, which is sort of the theme of this passage, uh, this whole sermon series. The reason why Jesus talked about it so much, you guys, is not just money. Jesus talked about it so much because our heart, our allegiances, our loyalties, our priorities, everything that we do and are about in our lives is somehow ultimately tied to money, wealth, and possessions. And Jesus literally said, you could either serve money or me. In other words, he was saying, it's that powerful a force in your life. You will either be mastered by your treasure or you will master your treasure. You'll either serve me, be devoted to me, prioritize me, have me as your Lord, or you'll be about other things that are related to money. And today, as we end this sermon series, you guys, I need to be really, really practical, and I'm going to do that towards the end, but it's my one last attempt to get you to see that the fundamental motivation is not, you need to do it because it's the right thing to do. You need to do it because if you don't, God's going to punish you. You need to do it because, you know, that's what good Christians do. I need you to understand, that is the inevitable result of understanding and encountering grace. Encountering grace. And there's a group of people that understood this. Open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. There's a group of people that understood this. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. It was the the Macedonians, as Paul refers to them. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, we're going to be at chapter 8. I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians chapter 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Brief background before we look at the verses. And I'm going to talk like extra fast today because I feel pressed for time and I have a lot of ground to cover. So if you are new to this church, I apologize. If you have one of those machines that like slows down the way that the uh, person talks. You might be able to, but I need to. touch top. Is that okay? Is that okay? Okay, here we go. So Second Corinthians chapter 8. So here's the background. The church in Jerusalem, the church in Jerusalem is struggling. Church in Jerusalem is struggling. Some scholars think maybe it was poverty, Some think it, uh, a huge poverty because maybe it was famine or persecution. But the church in Jerusalem is struggling financially. And what Paul is doing is he's going around these churches that he's planted and he's making a collection to help this church in Jerusalem. And he has told the Corinthian church that he's going to visit them to make a collection. This is his third time visiting them. But in his letter, he addresses this topic. Now, scholars and commentators kind of noticed the interesting thing. Chapters 8 and 9 in 2 Corinthians seem kind of out of place because in nowhere, he he talks about money, and all of a sudden, out of chapter 8 and 9, he talks about generosity. Because in first seven chapters, essentially, Paul's been doing is he's been rebuking the Corinthian church because they haven't been living out their lives in accordance with the gospel, right? So he's rebuking them for tons of sort of... Things that they weren't doing as Christians. And he calls them to repent. And all of a sudden, in chapters 8 and 9, there's a, song on, there's a thing on money. And when you pay careful attention to the progression of 2 Corinthians, it makes perfect sense why Paul would do that. Because essentially his message is this. First 7 chapters, I've talked to you about genuine repentance. Genuine repentance in your relationship with Jesus Christ. And then in chapters 8 and 9, he's literally saying, here's the sign that, 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 that sorrow that leads to genuine repentance is evident in your life. He says, what are you doing about generosity? So it's very much in line with what Paul's been saying all along, which is, here's what a life of discipleship of Christ looks like. Radical generosity. Verse 1. And now, brothers, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. Out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify, verse 3, that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. There's several principles that are going to start with radical generosity. Here's the first one that we see in these four verses. One, radical generosity springs from joy. Who said amen? That's very cool. I'm glad that they struck a chord with you. Because look into what Paul says. He says, he stresses that the mess, generosity derived from their joy, but their joy didn't derive from their generosity. In other words, they didn't feel joyful because they gave. They gave because they were joyful. Why is that funny? Oh, my voice? Okay. Uh, well, can we have me a water, please? Uh. Sorry. Sorry. People on podcasts are going, why are they laughing? Why are they laughing? But isn't that cool? I mean, Paul makes a distinction. He says, they didn't, they didn't, their generosity was because they were already filled with joy rather than their, 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 they, they felt joyful. Okay, I completely lost my chain of thought. So let's stick with what I initially said. You understood what I said, right? Take your time. time. Thank you, Michael. See, I want to press for time. Here's the reason why that's so critical. Because the motivation for their giving wasn't to pat themselves on the back. Wasn't to appear more benevolent than they actually were. Wasn't so that they could. The reason why they gave was because they were already joyful, filled with joy. Now, when we give, it feels good. When we're generous, there's a thing about it that, that feels right. But that's a far distant secondary third reason for why we should give. Paul says we give because we are people who are already filled with joy in God. How many of us are, t- Jesus says this in Matthew 6. He says, when you give, don't, don't blare trumpets and let people know you give. He also said this, though. He said, when you give, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. In other words, he was saying, when you give, don't not just tell other people. Don't even tell yourself that you're giving. Why? He says, that's your reward. That's it. Like, I gave myself. People said, Woo! good guy. That's your reward. That's it. If our benevolence arises out of wanting to, ha, ah, that makes me feel good. Jesus says, wrong motivation. Your motivation is, I am already filled. Therefore, I give. You know why that's important? Because when we give in order to feel joyful, guess who gets the credit? But when we give because we're already joyful and filled with God, guess who gets the credit? He does. So when we give, it's not so that we could be given credit and pat ourselves. We give so that God, do you know what this means? That means if you're not giving radically generously, you don't need more information. If you can't be a radically generous giver, you need a bigger vision of God. You need a bigger vision of God, friend. You need a bigger vision of God. We don't give as a way of something that we can do for God. We give rather as an illustration of how much God has done for us. Already joyful. Already joyful. The second principle that we get, though, from these verses, that's just radical generosity. It's from joy. Radical generosity is about the level of Sacrifice. And this is so important and key, especially for a church like ours, and especially in this economic time. Listen to what Paul says in verse 3. He says, they gave as much as they were able and beyond their abilities. Now, this doesn't mean, we covered this last week, sort of, that, what they, that, 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 that they gave more than they had, you know? So they gave and put them sort of in debt and uncomfortable position. But rather, when they gave, it hurt. Biblical generosity is giving to the extent that it hurts. I want you to just think about that for a moment. Jonathan Edwards, in preaching Galatians chapter six, commented on verse two this way: the verse that says, "Bear each other's burdens, Christians, for in that way you fulfill the law of Christ." He said that somebody says, "You know, I just can't afford to give. I I just, I, I just can't afford to give." This is what he said. He said, "If we are never obliged to relieve others' burdens, but when we can do it without burdening ourselves, then how do we bear our neighbor's burdens when we bear no burden at all?" Man, this <laughs> He says, radical biblical giving is not, okay, you know, I, I, I'm not, I can't give to the point, you know, because if we give, you know, it's going to be a little uncomfortable, you know, we're going to have to cut some things out, and we're going to... He says, that's precisely what biblical giving will do. So we Americans in America go, I have five leftovers, you know, if, I, if I've kind of got some things on the side, you know, a little bit... And, and the Bible, biblical giving says, biblical giving is... Are you burdened because you're giving? Like, does it force you to alter your lifestyle? Can I just make a confession? I suck at this. I stink at it. <laughs> because my mentality is, do I have some left over? Can I? My mentality is not, what can I change about the way I live so that I can give biblically? How many of you thought that? That's why the example of the Macedonians illustrates proportional giving. That's biblical, proportional giving. You know what that means? Can I just talk? Everybody look up here. That means for some of us, let's be real here. Giving away tithe, 10%, it doesn't do anything. You know what I mean? 10%, duh. You know, we still travel the way we want to, eat at the restaurants we want to. We buy the stuff they want to. 10%, nothing, nothing. It doesn't change anything. There's no burden. Some of us in our church, for them to even put food on the table, giving something to the church means going without things that you and I consider a basic thing. There are people in our church, working families, who can't afford to give 10%, but for them to give even 2 3 4% to the cause of God, to charity, to church, means that they go without things that you and I just take for granted. And yet, they are some of the most faithful givers in our church. Carry each other's burdens, for in this way you fulfill the law of Christ. I don't carry your burden. That means I'm going to walk away burdened. That's okay. That's biblical giving. That's biblical generosity. Amen? (laughs) I know. No encouraging emails. Thank you for that. Amen for that. I love to be burdened. Mm. What does this mean? I said this last week. Does this mean that all Christians are called to be voluntarily poor? No, here's what it means. Write this down. All Christians are not called to be voluntarily poor. All Christians are called to be voluntarily simpler in our lifestyle. All Christians are called to be simpler, voluntarily simpler. In no way does this principle mean that some of you... Who make good money shouldn't live in the neighbors that you live in. I'm going to say this one last time before we move on. We need Christians in every sphere of society and every sphere of our city. We need some of you to live in the neighbors that you do because you are the witness to Christ in that workplace, in that neighborhood, to those people that live next to you. If all Christians were called to be voluntarily poor, we've got massive sections of the city of Chicago that would never hear an account of the gospel of Christ. You are called to be in those neighborhoods, so embrace it and be okay with it. However, that means that as we embrace a voluntary, simple lifestyle, in our income bracket, we always live at the low end of our income bracket rather than at the highest end. That means that the more money we make, Greater the distance there should be between how we could live and how we actually do live. That's biblical generosity. So how many of you guys thought about that? How many really, really thought about it? Okay, I've got one person like, I thought about it. It's two, three people. How many of you guys really thought about, sat down and said, you know what? Here's how I could live. That's easy. Here's how I could live. Here's what I could drive, what I could wear, where I live. Here's how much money I could spend. That's what I could do. But you know what? I'm going to intentionally be here. I'm going to intentionally embrace voluntarily simplicity so that I can be more radical in giving. Are you even asking those questions? And if you are, phenomenal. If you are not, you need to begin asking those questions. I shared this last week. I'm just going to share it once again because it really hit a nerve with some of you guys. The example of someone who did this really was John Wesley, okay? The great evangelist of the 18th century. In 1731, John Wesley the famed writer of wonderful hymns, Methodism, so on and so forth, he began to limit his expenses so that he would have more money to give to the poor. In the first year, John Wesley, his income was about 30 pounds, and he found that he could live on 28, so he gave away two pounds. In the second year, his income doubled, but he held his expenses even, and so he had 32 pounds to give away, and he did. In the third year, his income jumped to 90 pounds, and he gave away 62 pounds. In his life, his income advanced as high as 1,400 pounds in a year, but he rarely let his expenses rise above 30 pounds, what he lived on the first year. It was said that he seldom had more than 100 pounds in his possessions at a time. When he died at the age of seven, in 1791 at the age of 87, the only money that was left in John Wesley's will was the coins to be found in his pockets and his dresser. Most of the 30,000 pounds he earned in his life, he gave away. He gave away. And he said this. He said, if I leave behind me even 10 pounds, you and all mankind bear witness against me that I died a thief and a robber. Verse 5. They did not do as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and into us in keeping with God's will. So we urge Titus, since he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But just as you excel in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge and complete earnestness and in your love for us, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. If you've read 1st and 2nd Corinthians, you know that one of the things that Paul commended them for and rebuked them for at the same time was that this was a church that was wonderfully spiritually gifted. It was a church in where the Holy Spirit was working powerful ways. It was a church with all kinds of spiritual gifts. Some of the most profound and important teaching on spiritual gifts is found in the book of 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Right? And here's literally what Paul is saying. He's saying, look, the the further proof that the Spirit of God is alive and moving among you, along with spiritual gift like faith, spiritual gift of speech, spiritual gift of knowledge, he said the proof that the Spirit of God is among you moving is that you are just as passionate about this discipline of giving. So here's the fourth principle or third principle that we get from this passage. And this radical generosity authenticates the work of the Holy Spirit. Guys, this is the reason why we talk so much about this and we've gone back to this. If you want to understand Christianity, if you want to understand uh, understand what it means to be a Christian, you need to see what the Bible says about money and possessions. Jesus was always talking about money and possessions and wealth because he was literally saying, that's how, that's what makes your faith in God real. That's what your faith in God real. That's what makes your love for other people that you proclaim to have real. That's what makes your compassion love for a hurting and broken love world real. The way that we see the reality of what you do and the reality of what you believe is how do you view your resources and your money and your possessions. We saw this, guys, throughout the book of Acts as we've been studying it, right? Acts X, X, X chapter 2, X chapter 4, X chapter 5, X, chapter 6, because the early church, the Christians gave away their money, shared their possessions in such radical ways that it made their witness powerful, it made it legitimate, it authenticated that something real had happened to them. I mean, isn't it about proclaiming God is real? God is alive. He is resurrected from the dead. Along with the proclamation of the gospel and the essence of the gospel, it was their economic life. It was their sharing life. It was their, what they did with their possessions. It was what they did with their money. It was their economic life. They gave witness to these unbelievers who said, anybody can say that God is real. Anybody can say you've encountered God. Anybody can say you've really loved people. But show me. And they did the early church showed and displayed that something real had happened to them by the way they lived and their academic life. Um, let Let me bring this home to you guys this way in terms of this authentic in the work of the Holy Spirit. The three cardinal virtues, three cardinal virtues that makes a Christian, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, let me actually put it up for you. Uh, verse 13. This is the chapter on love, right? The chapter on love, 1 Corinthians 13. He says, if I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, but have not love, I gain. Now, that, that, that's one of those verses that you just kind of sit on for a while and you go, hmm. But then in verse 13, this is what he says in the chapter on love. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is Love. Let's talk very plainly about these three things. The thing that makes sort of the essence and the heart of virtues at the heart of a Christian faith, hope, and love. Why don't we give? Let's talk plainly. Let's, Let's just be why don't we give more? Why aren't we more radically generous with our positions, with our wealth? Because of faith. We lack faith. For some of us, it's because we're afraid. We're afraid. We look at the economic situation around us and we go, I can't afford to give because if I give and a rainy day comes, I might not be able to care for myself and so therefore I'm not going to give. See, that's not just lack of generosity, that's lack of faith and trust in who our God is. We could say, I have faith in God. I trust God with eternal life. I trust God. We, we say that every single breath, every single moment of our lives, we are dependent on our heavenly father. And yet, when it comes to wealth, finances, and resources, we go, "Huh?" This is where real faith intersects with life. We say that we have faith. Do you really? Do you trust God? Do you trust your heavenly father? See, it makes it tangible, doesn't it? it? makes it real. That's why I've asked you before, when you give, does it excite you or does it frighten you? Faith. What about hope? We've been saying all along, hope. Faith, hope, and love, hope. Hope is about where we ultimately find significance, identity, security, where we find ultimately our sense of meaning. Why don't we give? Again, let's just speak very, very honestly. Why don't we give? Is it because our hope is in Christ? Is our hope founded in Christ? Or is our hope in other things like status? So we spend an enormous amount of money on things that would give us status in this world. Is our hope found in Christ? Or is our hope found in worldly security? So we save and save and save, and nothing wrong with that, but we save and save and save, and we're radically generous because we're afraid of the circumstances. We're afraid of our future, and we say, my hope, we say, my hope is found in Christ, but really, my hope actually is in how much I'm saving for a rainy day. Faith, hope, people love. And what about love? This one is just straightforward. The Bible says, you cannot say to your brother who's in need, good luck. He says, love is you take care of their needs in a tangible way. Anybody can say, I love my brothers in Christ. I love my sisters in Christ. I love the people of this world. The Bible says, here's how we know. Here's how you know. As much as we in our generation talk about authenticity, be real, y'all, authenticity, the Bible says, here's how your faith is real, y'all, and authentic. What are you doing about your wealth, possessions, and resources? That says you are a people of faith, you are a people of hope, and you're a people of In the year 252 A.D., historians speak of a major plague that hit Carthage, city of Carthage. And this plague literally killed hundreds of thousands of people. And people are literally throwing their family members out into the street, their own sons, their own daughters. Because they didn't, to, they didn't want to die from the plague. They were just throwing. Bishop Cyprian, who was the bishop of the city, gathered together all the Christians and said, here's what we're going to do. We are going to take these people that have been thrown out into the streets into our homes and we will care for them. We will care for them. You know who took notice? The emperor, who was, by the way, an avowed atheist and a hater of Christianity. And this is what he wrote to one of his friends. Their success, Christianity, lies in their charity to all. They take care of not only their own poor, but ours as well. What distinguished the early Christians more than anything else was their radical attitude. Let me just say this. This was a culture in which people were very liberal with their sexuality and stingy with their money. Christians came along and were very, very liberal with their money and were stingy with their sexuality. And it changed their world. Moving on. Verse 8. I am not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Can I encourage you guys to do something, challenge? Can I encourage some of us just to memorize these two verses? Can we do that? Can we do that? Can we do this actually next week when we come together? Can we all say it together? (laughs) Wow. Wow. I'm serious. I'm serious. Homework. Homework. I know some of us have been out of school. Homework. Can we memorize? Yes. Write it down. Memorize these verses. And when we come together, before I preach, I will say, everybody, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. Here we go. And we're going to say it in unison. Homework. Because it will transform... Our hearts. Here's the fourth principle that Paul says in this passage. Radical generosity results from a reorientation to the gospel of grace. Notice what Paul does not do. Paul doesn't come along as I probably would have, even if I was Paul. He says, hey, 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 I'm an apostle. You got to do what I say. (laughs) Sometimes I wish I had that, you know? Just do it. Why? I'm an apostle. I saw Jesus. Have you? No. Okay. (laughs) I guess you got one up on me. All right. Fine. Fine. I'll do it. Fine. But he doesn't come and he go do it because I command you. I'm an apostle. He doesn't do that. He also doesn't refer to, he also doesn't get to the emotions. You know, the violin and slides of poor children in Jerusalem. <laughs> he, he doesn't do the emotion. Come on. Don't you care. He doesn't do, I'm an apostle. You know what he does? He says, think on his what? Grace. He says, think on his grace think on his grace in other words don't sit down with the calculator sit down with the cross sit down with the cross think about what he did think about the cross of Jesus Christ think about the fact that although he was rich and wealthy he became poor for your sake and think on that until your heart overflows in absolute mind-boggling generosity, joy that will prompt you to say dear daddy where can I give? He says, I'm not commanding you. I'm not going to do the emotional. That's why I say, I will never use those two tactics. I will never come to you. And that's the reason why I finish my sermons the same way every week. I don't come and go, you got to do it. Don't you want to be a good Christian? Because y'all will roll your eyes and go, no. I don't want to play on your emotions because you're smarter than that. You sit there and go, why are you messing around with my emotions? I am simply bringing the cross of Jesus Christ and do what Paul does, which is, Sit on it until your heart is blown away. Because it's when you meditate on the fact that although he was wealthy, he became poor. That you really won't worry about money. Why? When you worry and go, God, do you care about me? Are you going to take care of me? Paul says, look at the cross. Romans chapter 8. He who did not spare his own son. How will he not with all things give you all things? How do you not worry about money and concern? He says, sit on the cross and think about the fact that he gave you his son. And when you're tempted to go, do you care? He gave you his son. Do you really love me? He gave you his son. Are you looking out for my benefit? He gave you his son. Secure. How you feel secure? Do you really care? The cross of Jesus Christ confers on you incredible status you are adopted in the family of God you are a child of God you are his beloved there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus nothing that you do nothing that you don't do can ever separate you from the love of God in Christ nothing in this world can separate you not even you from the love of God in Christ to which I go thank God That's why Martin Luther said this, me of generosity. He said, every Christian ought to get up in the morning and go, I'm wealthy. I am wealthy beyond all means. Can we say, I'm wealthy? Why? I'm an heir of the guy who owns the universe We're crying out loud. Hello? I'm an heir of the one who rules the universe. And he says, when, when this deal is done, the world, you're going to rule with me. Holy God, Wrap your brain around that. Wrap your brain around that. You could actually go to Bill Hybels and go, nah, 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 you know? It doesn't matter how much world, how worldly wealth you own. If Martin Luther said, you are an heir of wealth or security, security, he loves you. He gave his son for you. He calls you his beloved. You have been adopted in the family of God. You are his son. You are his daughter. You've been given a new status that can never, ever be taken away and changed. Death? Death? Anybody afraid of death? You know what the gospel says? Death used to be an executioner. Now, it's just a gardener. There's resurrection. Hmm. That's why Paul says, literally, 1 Corinthians 15, to death. Nah, nah, nah. And I'm, I don't know why I'm doing that. Just. <laughs> He's saying, that gives us joy, that gives security, that gives us the ability to go, I'm free, I'm confident, I'm bold. I can live my life without fear because the cross of Jesus Christ and the empty tomb tells me who I am. Is that good news? Sit down with the cross. And maybe then some of us will walk out not saying, you know, if I only had more money, but we'd walk out going, if I only had more of Jesus. Maybe we'd walk out going, you know, if I only had more money, I could. We'd say, you know, if I only had more of Jesus, I could. Don't you want that? I want that. I want that. I'm going to give every morning and go, if I only had more of you, with more of you in my life, I could. Let's finish up verse 10. Here's my advice about what is best for you in this matter. Last year, you're the first not only to give, but also have the desire to do so. Now finish the work so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it according to your means. For if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what he does not have. Fifth principle, radical generosity is really about love. As Paul says, work on your love. The willingness and the desire and, the, and the, the compulsion to do that. Work on your love. Sit with the cross. Sit at the cross of Jesus Christ. Because God demands generosity, but he demands that it not be a response to a demand. God requires a love that is not the response to a requirement. Really, the heart, cheerful giver, Corinthians says, the heart that the God delights in is a child of God who says, look, daddy, here it is. And not, what I'm afraid. Whatever. But I got to watch. I don't want to be a bird. My heart says, my heart's free. My heart's been freed. My heart's been freed, man. Hmm. The amount of money that you give really means very little, you guys. The motivation behind it, Scripture says, is everything. That's why Paul couldn't say it any stronger. 1 Corinthians 13, even if you give away everything that you have, everything, even if you die a martyr, he says, if you have not love, it means what? Nothing. So sit with the cross. What a great season to do it, huh? Season of Lent. Sit with the cross until it melts your heart. Real practically, real practically. What does this mean? I got one last verse I want to do. Real practically. I really, really need you guys to pay attention for these next practical things because I cannot cover everything at once. But I need to give you a little bit to have you sign up for a budgeting workshop and class that we'll be offering. The ten ten eighty principle. Practically, ten ten eighty principle. What does that mean? I was taught this a while back. The biblical sort of way to approach finances. This is one way, not the only way, not the only, you know, biblical way. One way is to 10, 10 what is that? 10% give to God first, 10% save, and then live on 80%. Everybody say 10, 10, 80. 10, 80. Everybody say 10 10 80. 10, 10, 80. Okay, so when you go out today and say, what did the pastor talk about? He talked about 10, 10, 80. What does that mean? Well, let me tell you. Give to God 10%, save 10%, and live on 80 Give to God for his 10%. Now, real quick, as we talked about, we're talking about proportional giving. So aim for tithing. Aim to give a 10% or even for some, some more. But aim for Here's what this means. There are some of you, I know a lot of artists in our church, musicians, who don't have a steady income. And they literally go, so you're like sheepishly smiling right now because you know what I'm talking to you. You're sitting there going, my income is like so all over the place. You know, I don't get paid at the end of the month. Like, what do I do? Here's what I always tell him. Here's what I tell him. He's like, faithful giving is this. If you have unpredictable income, kind of guesstimate on what you think you'll make, you know, and tie kind of the low end of that. Make sure you take care of yourself. You got to pay bills. You got to take care of yourself. You got to do those things, but tie the low end of it. And then if you are surprised that God was generous to you and you made more money than you made, than you thought, and tie a little bit more of that. At the end of the year. There's no legalistic thing like you have to. No. Be flexible. Well, wow, We have comedians in our church, you know, who, who do like these comic stand-up shows. And, I, I, and I'm going, wow, that, 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 whew, that's hard, right? That's hard. And so they go, what does it mean for me to be faithful and generous? This is what I tell them. I go, tie the low end of whatever it is that you make. Give generously to God. And then if you make more, then towards the end, to make no at the end, give more. Again, don't be legalistic and bound by and saying if I'm insane. Not in sin because you don't tithe. How about legalism and fundamentalism? Okay? But give to God first. Here's a great principle about giving to God first, okay? First Corinthians chapter 16. Now about the collection for God's people. Do what I told the Galatian churches to do on the first day of every week. Each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with this income, saving it up so that when I come no collections will have to be made. Here's the principle. Radical generosity is systematic and thoughtful. In other words, when you, when you actually want to give to God, will you do this? The first check, the first check you get, write out to God. So sit down, sit down, get out your checkbook or whatever, first check. Before you do anything else, pay bill, first check, write out to God. 1%, 2%, it doesn't matter. Commit to it, write out to God. Because when you do that, here's what you communicate. You're saying, God, I'm about your priorities first. God, I'm about your kingdom first. I'm about your needs first, God. So I can't give this much for right now, but first thing that I'm going to do is a great discipline. When I was growing up, I remember my mom still. My parents, you know, they were fortunate enough to teach me this. I mean, they, they would, they would give me an allowance and every Sunday they would give me this little coin. It was worth about like a dime, you know, maybe a little less. And I'd put it in my pocket and I'd walk to church. And my parents, it was a way of saying, remember, it's a priority to say, God, you first. Interesting enough in the Old Testament, first fruits. It was an agrarian society. First fruits of 10% meant the best crops is what went to God first. It's this is a way of saying, God, the best for you first. The first. Some of us, here's what I want you to do. Get into the discipline of writing out the first check. Put it in an envelope. Put it in your Bible and say, I'm not going to touch that. That's for you. That's for you. Here's what that does. For a lot of us, and, and I don't want to pick us on our church, but when I was growing up in youth group, here's what offering time came, and people would be like, you know, your coins, chingling, whatever. And, and, and it wasn't the amount. It was come to God and say, God, I've prepared this. I've planned this. It's not a lot. It's, it's little. But you're calling me faithful, so here it is, God. Little of what I have, I want to make sure that I give to you first. It stays right there. Now, for some of you guys that are going, man, that just seems too disciplined, too predictable, too. And you're going, I'm not like that. I'm like an artist. You know, I kind of go with the flow. I want to say to you, there are things in our lives we, don't, we can't afford to do that with, right? Like, none of us, like, calls com Ed, you know, and go, you know, I'm just not once a month kind of guy. <laughs> you know, I kind of, like, go with the flow, you know I mean? If you want me to, like, design the envelope, I, I will do that. But just kind of, like, once a month kind. But there are things in our lives where we go, what it is. I discipline myself. I do it. Doing that for God is an act of worship. Right at the first check. Carl, are you feeling this? See, this right here for me, guys, because I'd rather go focus on the cross. This right here is like, ah, common sense, but you know, we got to. Okay, secondly, save 10%. There's an infallible human rule. Spending expands to fill income, right? We just talked about this last week. We all just get by no matter what we make. Spending begets spending. So it's good stewardship to save. I had somebody ask me and said, Pastor, but you haven't talked about saving at all. I'm telling you right now. It is good discipline to say, I'm going to put away 10%. 10% to God, put away 10%. I'm not going to touch it. Discipline myself to do that. It is, it is biblical and good stewardship to save. Only thing I would say is this. As you save, will you ask yourself this question? Am I saving because it's my source of true security? Or am I saving because I'm being wise? Am I saving because I'm scared and I don't trust God? I say I do, but I don't. Or am I saving because I'm being wise? Ask yourself that question and save. Third, live on the rest. Live on the rest. What do I mean? Pick a percentage. If you don't want to say 80%, you're saying, you know what, that's just too much. That's just too little for me to live on. You know, choose a percentage that you want to live on and stick with it. Everybody look up here. Everybody look up here. Can we all agree that we actually, whether we like it or not, think so or not, already live on a percentage of our income? Yes. Now, is it wise to say, so I'm going to choose what that is instead of having my lifestyle choose for me what that is? Or the culture tell me what that is? See what I'm saying? So some of us go, choose a percentage. I don't want to do that. That's, you already are. But you're doing it sort of like unwise and uncertain. You just kind of, but is it wise to say, I'm going to choose a percentage for me to live on and I'm going to make that 80, 70, whatever situation is. pick a percentage and stick with it. Discover what it is that you're wanting to live on and choose that percentage and be disciplined about it. You know, when I do married couple counseling, free marital counseling, when they come to me, I say this to them. You will never live more inexpensively than you do now. As you get married, singles, as you get married, cost of living, doop! Have kids, Kids go to college. Well, forget about that, right? I'm not even thinking about that right now, right? It continues to go up. So choose a percentage that you and your wife could sit down, your spouse could sit down with and say, here is what we want to live on. Let's be disciplined about it instead of just kind of having our lifestyle do it. Again, I've never had a married counseling session where the husband and wife come in and the husband goes, I can't stand my wife. I can't help it. She just will not spend any money. (laughs) I keep trying to tell her. I tempt her. I get catalogs, put it in front of us, say, spend more money. Will you do something? I can't help her. I've never had that. Never in my counseling session. You know what I have had? <laughs> you know, right? <laughs> you see the picture, right? She doesn't, she doesn't even know how much we make. it. she goes, if you made more money, we would. No, no, that's not the issue. The issue is, do you know what the percentage is? And are you living on it? So here's another real quick. Check your spending. Check your spending. What do I mean? You should never ever have a conversation about finances with your spouse. If you're single, listen, listen, listen. You would never ever, you should never ever, or even with yourself, have a conversation about finances that starts with, where did all the money go? (laughs) You know where the money goes. (laughs) Track it. Or, you know, it seems to me that you, it doesn't seem nothing. You know where it goes. Some of you have credit card statements that says, Food, entertain. you know, you look at that and go, wow, I am like paying for Hollywood or I am paying, you know, for some of us that don't have credit cards and we're keeping receipts and all that is when I, one thing I told you guys two, three weeks ago, save all your envelopes. And I'm actually beginning to do this again. Save all your envelopes. Uh, save, all your envelopes. <laughs> save all your receipts. <laughs> Put in an envelope. And at the end of the month. Take that sucker out, and you know, like, wow. Track your spending. Where is it going? Where is it going? And third, get rid of consumer debt. David Ramsey, anybody a fan of his? He talks about paying off dumb debt, right? Dumb debt. In other words, he's going, why are you paying for that meal you ate six months ago? Why are you paying for that? shirt or whatever, shoes that you bought two years ago. Doesn't make any sense. Commit to paying off consumer debt. Please, please, please come to the stewardship seminar. It doesn't make any sense to be paying off things that you've already eaten, you've already worn out. It really, really hurts. It really hurts. And lastly, lastly, practically, and, and, and I need to get this in here practically. Look at verse 13. 1 Corinthians, our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard-pressed, but that there might be equality. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need, so that in turn, their plenty will supply what you need. Then there will be equality. As it is written, he who gathered much did not have too much, and he who gathered little did not have too little. Here's the last principle. Be a part of a radically changed community. Everybody, I plead with you. I plead with you. Will you guys look up here? I plead with you. I know I went a little long today. Will you pay attention for the next few minutes? Yes? Because this is so important. So important. As I think about our church, and as I think about, as I, as I think about what it means for us to be this community that, that, that lives this out, and as all of us sort of fumble our way, and some of us do extremely well, and some of us just starting out as we fumble our way, what does it mean for us to live this life biblically? We need to be part of a radically changed community. Here's what I mean by that. Here's what I mean by that. Real quick. Here's what Jesus one time said in Luke chapter 12, verse 31. But seek first his kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will not be exhausted, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, I want you to pay attention. Why do we give... Jesus says, why do we give? Is it so that God would accept us? Is it so that we could enter the kingdom? Is it so that he would approve of us? Is it so that he would bless us? Is it so that he would? He says, your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. It's yours. It's yours. The gospel, it's yours already. You don't work for it. You don't earn it. It's yours. It's yours. So that whatever it is in terms of how you live out your finances, it is not so that you can please God with it, earn his favor. It's yours. Your father's been pleased to give you the kingdom. And then he gets to the part of why we don't give, why, why, why many of us struggle with this. In verse 32, he says, do not be afraid, little flock. We're afraid. We're afraid. He says, we're, we're afraid. Many of us are, what about food? What about clothes? What about, what about my needs? We don't give because we're afraid that the kingdom of God won't meet our needs. And yet Jesus says in his promise, seek first his kingdom, and all of these needs will be met. Well, what does that mean? Listen, for many of us, we've been taught growing up in church that if we give generously, that God will provide for our needs. And here's what we think. If we give generously... There'll be a check in the mail. If I go towards missions, I pray God's gonna give a check in the mail, or I'm gonna win the lottery. (laughs) In other words, when we think about God providing for our needs, we think individualistically. That's not what He is saying, and that's not what He intended. No, this is to say that God doesn't provide miraculously for our needs. But when he, says, when he says, all of these needs will be met, he says, don't be afraid, little flock. Now, English is my second language, but I know that flock is plural. <laughs> true? Is it true? Okay. So he says, don't be afraid little fly. In other words, he is not. Listen, listen, so careful. This is so important, so important. He's not saying, God will meet your needs if you seek for the kingdom, little fly. He's not saying, so he will interact supernaturally, intervene individually. He's saying, no, no, no. I'm talking to you as a group. Flock, flock, flock. I'm talking to you as a group. God will meet your needs. Flock. How? Listen to what he said. Mark chapter 10, verse 29. I tell you the truth. No one who has left homes or brothers or sisters or mothers or fathers or children or fields for me. And the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields. And with them, persecution sometimes and in the age to come. Now, we know what some of those words mean. Because whenever I dedicate a baby, I go, when we enter the new kingdom, we enter a new family. And we get new moms and new dads and new uncles. And we all smile and go, that's so cool. But here's what we don't think about. We don't think about the fact that he doesn't just say father, mother, brother, sister. He says, and fields, and homes. Why? Okay, I'm tired of this. Let me just say it to you this way. The way that Jesus said, seek for the kingdom, and all these things will be added unto you. Your needs will be met. He wasn't just saying, God will supernaturally help you win a lotto, or give you a check in the mail. He says, you don't have to be afraid to give radically, because when you join this community, when you give, and you are in need, the community will meet your needs oh my gosh you're awake do you know why that is so powerful this is so powerful Michael are you listening to this this is so powerful because it completely revolutionizes everything that we see in the New Testament about what it means to live radical lives Because when we live radically generously, many of us are going, well, I'm not a, you know, Holy Spirit. I don't know. God's going to send the mail. That's never happened to me. And God's going to provide me. That's never happened to me. And we go, I'm afraid. And God says, listen, when you seek for my kingdom, you join a new community that says, hello, I saw this somewhere. Where all the believers share everything as if none of it belonged to them. You belong to a community where when you are not afraid to give and you give to meet the needs of others and when you yourself find yourself in need the community comes along and says hey, remember the time you were radically generous? Now that you're in need? We got your back. We got you. That's what he's saying throughout the New Testament. That's why we're not afraid because we're flock, flock flock, not chick, chick, chicken, chick, cheek, cheek, sheep, I don't know. I have the whole mother hand and chickens and stuff like that in my head. So I'm going to, yes. So here's what that means. How does the word gospel listen? That means, that means, listen, that means that we are the kind of community where the gospel has so humbled you that when you are in need you let us know you let us know that God was so humbled you that you don 't sit there and go i'm too proud to ask i 'm too arrogant to ask what if i'm what if well i don't want them to know that i 'm dependent you are dependent already. gospel in this community can it be possible has so humbled us that when we are in need we say I'm not too proud to ask hey guys I'm living my life faithfully and I'm in need can I help? can you get some help It's a gospel community that's humble that we're not afraid to ask. And it's also a gospel community in which the gospel has so transformed us and given us security, given us wealth, given us significance, value, and identity that we are not afraid. No, we are bound to be radically generous because we don't find our significance in money. We don't find identity in money. We don't find the things that we crave and the world shouts at us that we need in money. So we are free. We're free. And we're looking around going, who's in need in our community? And I'm going to be radically generous because I know if I ever find myself in need, y'all got my back, right? And the community says, yes. Can we be this kind of a community? Are we a community like that? Seek first. His kingdom and all these things shall be provided by you and 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 by me. And in that way, we fulfill the law of Christ. Bow your heads with me, God. We're actually, can you guys do this? Us, oh, so all stand together. Stand together. Stand together. Cause I'm gonna sit down, cause I'm tired. Y'all stand up, okay? Y'all stand up. Hold each other's hands. Let's hold each other's hands through the aisles, through the through the aisles. Please hold each other's hands. David Carragher, come on up. Choir, come on up. Hold each other's hands. Hold each other's hands. Hold each other's hands. Hold each other's hands, please. Please. I don't know if you guys caught that. I just rushed right through it, but I prayed so hard, God, that. That that, that that we would get this that there will be truly a revolution occurring in some of our hearts right now as we speak that this whole deal about radical generosity was never meant to be just about me and God and people in need that when you called us to seek first your kingdom and your righteousness you called us as a community of people to do it together God, for some of us in this room who are in some ways too proud or too arrogant or too whatever to ask our own flesh and blood, brothers and sisters, in need. God, will you remind us that every single one of us stands in the same place at the foot of the cross? That we are fallen, lost sinners who are equally valued, equally worthy in your eyes. Remind us, God, that the cross levels the playing field and that it is our humility and our willingness to acknowledge need that testifies to the gospel of Jesus Christ because we begin this whole deal by coming to you humbly and saying, God, I'm in need. I'm in need. And for some of us who've been afraid to be radically generous because we're afraid that if we gave, will you take care of us? Remind us that you haven't just given us you. We're blown away by that, but you've given us each other. That this community that you have called us to is the group that is supposed to care for each other radically. (laughs) Oh God. God, I pray every day that this will be true of us in our community that we would reflect your kingdom to the world that desperately needs to see evidence and tangible, real evidence of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So here's what I want you to do before we leave. The worship team is going to sing this song. And, and, and it's actually a song over you and song of sort of challenge, blessing. I want you to spend the next moment or two Will you pray for your neighbors first. Pray for those that, are, that you're holding your hands with. Pray for them. Pray for them. Pray for them. You don't have to know exactly what their needs are. Pray for them. Not only that God would provide for their needs, but that they would embrace this gospel transforming message that they would be radically generous people. Then secondly, pray beyond just the two neighbors next to you for our church community, new community, that we would live out in authentic way the name of our church, that we would be a church where because we all share everything we have in common, nobody really is in need. Can we be that by the power of the Holy Spirit? So pray for our church. And then lastly, pray for your heart, your heart, and where spirit might speak to your heart and what you need to hear. Feel free to pray as you wish. Pray out loud if you want to. Pray quietly if you want to. Let's pray. Let's pray together. Worship team, we just sing this blessing. Everybody in our church, let's pray together. Pray for one of our neighbors. Pray for the church. Pray for yourself. Pray for your heart. Let's pray together. Jesus, Jesus. I God, that you would do this work. God, that you would do this work in our hearts, in our minds. That you would do this work in our soul. You would do this work, O oh God, and deeply within us. That you would do this work, oh Spirit of God, Father. I pray for my brother and my sisters. I pray for my brothers and sisters, O oh God, that they would hear you. That they would hear you and hear the message of Jesus Christ. Help them to know. Help them to see. Help them to hear, Lord God, the truth and the message of Jesus. Oh, God. Lord, spirit of the living God. Lord, spirit of the living God. I pray for our church. Father, may you be the Lord of this church. Be the Lord of this church. The church, Lord God, that is your body. That is your kingdom. That is your group, Lord God. We need you. We need you. We need you, oh God. This community, God. This body, Lord God. This church, Lord God, that it would be yours. Oh, spirit of the living God. 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 Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. You God. May this be true of us. I want you to leave this place today knowing that you are not an isolated individual. You belong to this church family. Whether I even know your name or know your face, I don't care. You are part of me and I am a part of you. I cannot do this without you. Leave this place in recognition of what it is that you child of God have been called to we say these things pray these things in the name of the Father and the Son amazing Son and the Holy Spirit and all God's people said all God's people said Amen have a great great week